Thank you. We're going to spend some time in God's Word together. So if you have a Bible, would you like to turn to Mark chapter 9? And in a few moments we'll read from verse 14. Um, uh, thank you to all those who were at the prayer meeting on Friday and were praying for uh, me and my family. Uh, yes, it is true. I was ill this week. Thank you for your prayers. It's also true, it wasn't the most severe illness in the world. So uh, let me just, just put you all at ease. We're okay. <laughs> We're fine. And the benefit of your prayers as well. Um, we're going to read together, let's have a look at Mark chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry because the, the scripture references should come up on the screen so you can follow it there. Uh, last week, when we were all together upstairs with the other two congregations, we were uh, looking at Jesus uh, on the mountain with three of his disciples where he was transfigured and the disciples caught a glimpse of Jesus in his true heavenly glory, if you like, and we kind of gave a hint last week about what was going to be involved this time round when we come because they've been in the mountain now they uh, they had an interesting conversation on the way back down the mountain got so carried away last week we never quite managed to touch on that anyway now that we arrive in chapter 9 verse 14 they have arrived uh, with a slight bump um, down the mountain in the valley to find out what's uh, what's been going on and what happens next let's let's have a look together When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What were you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you, my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the Spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet and, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer so there we have it they have arrived back down uh, from the mountain arriving in the valley the the three disciples and Jesus are now kind of um, reuniting with the nine disciples that were left behind and and finding out what's been happening in the valley uh, since what's been 
going on. And we're going to f- focus on a few things, but just to kick us off with, really, um, there's a whole variety of things they encounter, a whole variety of, of problems, if you like. The, they, they're arriving at a place of suffering. They're encountering a poor boy. We don't know how old he is precisely, but what we do know from what his father says later on is that he's been suffering for some time from a particularly unpleasant and, um, and grim uh, condition. Uh, consistently, each of the gospel accounts attributes this to um, the activity of evil spirits, and, and in this case, producing uh, suffering for this boy. Um, he is experiencing some kind of... Uh, it, well, first of all, he doesn't have any speech. Uh, he's experiencing seizures that, that result in him being thrown to the ground, and it becomes clear later on that this, this isn't just what we might think of as, as, as epilepsy, in that when the spirit saw Jesus, when the boy was brought to Jesus later on, there's a reaction right there and then as, as, as they approach uh, Jesus. There's a place, it's a place of suffering. It's a place of disappointment. There's the dad who brought the child, expecting more from Jesus' disciples at the time than they were able to, uh, to deliver. It's a place of friction. The teachers of the law see this is an opportunity to start an argument. Um, it's kind of a frustrating insight, I suppose, into, into what critics can be like. Notice that the, the teachers of the law offer no help. Uh, it's not that they rush to the aid of the boy. It's not that they're expressing concern for him and his father. They're just kind of glad they've got an opportunity to rub Jesus' disciples' uh, nose in their own failure. And that's another thing we encounter down the mountain, in the valley, uh, the disciples' embarrassment, the disciples' failure. Um, Puzzled by it, they meant their best, um, but they've not been able to see this boy um, set free. Um, And all of this brings about a, a, a rebuke from Jesus. Oh, unbelieving generation. They've experienced this mountaintop uh, moment and they're coming back down to realize actually what, what ordinary life can be like when we experience ourselves or in people that are dear to us suffering, disappointment, friction, embarrassment. And if you like, you might say, well, Jesus in saying oh, unbelieving generation, well, maybe he's including the crowd. The crowd that were really enthusiastic to rush to Jesus, but later on after Jesus ministered to the boy, they think, oh, maybe the boy is dead. Unbelief in the crowd, unbelief in the the critics, the teachers of the law, part of this unbelieving generation, they're there when there's the possibility of an argument, but as soon as Jesus turns up, they know they've met their match, so they disappear. They don't want genuine debate uh, and discussion. They they just want to... um, to bring ridicule on Jesus' disciples and criticism. Oh, unbelieving generation. Perhaps the dad, even to some extent. Later on we'll see there's a bit of a blend for him. He's, he's come for, to see his boy um, set free. But he'll later on say, you know, if you can, Jesus, can you? He's, he's genuinely a bit of a, a, a mixed bag. But the, the focus is probably resting on the disciples when Jesus goes on to say how long shall I stay with you how long shall I put up with you 
Jesus is now heading to Jerusalem. With his disciples, they've gone to Caesarea Philippi, uh, up in the north beyond Galilee. They've gone up the mountain. Jesus had his experience on the mountain where he's been transfigured. And he's heard the voice of his father speaking actually to the disciples saying, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Now Jesus knows he's on the road to Jerusalem. He's heading. He's been chatting to Elijah and Moses on the mountain and they've been talking about his departure. They've been talking about his exodus. He's been talking about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Now he's heading to Jerusalem. He started to predict his own death. He knows what's hap- he's going to happen. We don't have loads of time. Maybe they've had two years. Maybe they've had two and a half years together as a band of brothers. Jesus knows the, tox- the clock is ticking. I'm soon going to be taken. I'm soon going to die. Yes, I'll rise again, but even after that, I'm going to ascend into heaven. We don't have much time. But what I want us to see, first of all, is this, in this passage, Jesus helping us and helping his disciples handle failure how do we handle failure the fact is we don't like acknowledging it we don't like talking about it we would much rather that we only had success stories to share now these disciples will go on and have success stories that they could share about how they've lived and how they've ministered in Jesus. And people reading or hearing Mark's gospel for the first time, uh, I would imagine, were well aware of some of these stories. So you might uh, remember in Acts uh, chapter 3, we've got two of the disciples there, two of the apostles. Um, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple Uh, at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he's put every day uh, to beg. This guy asks um, Peter and John, or or motions to them as though he's expecting to receive something. And uh, in now, for many of us, quite familiar words, we find out in in verse 6, Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. So I think, wow, the disciples had some, uh, some success stories to tell. How encouraging would it be if those 12 apostles had only ever shared their successes? What could the danger be if we, as a community, only talk about our successes or personally, we just relate to other people on the basis of our success. Maybe we'll talk about other people's failings. Maybe we'll talk about how they've let us down. But when it comes to us, we're just talking about what we've done, what we've achieved. I'll tell you what will probably happen within, uh, uh, amongst Christian believers is we'd start to think there's a two-tier Two-level Christianity going on. Now, maybe we can be prone to thinking this. Um, anyway, there's kind of the ordinary Christian. There's the ordinary Christian who's bumbling along, stumbling through life, um, uh, tripping up, needs help to stand, and is looking at and admiring, but knows they can never really be like. 
the special Christian. And the special Christian glides through life. The special Christian regularly goes up the mountain with, and has tremendous times uh, with God. And the special Christian only encounters success. We're finding out what happened back down the valley because the disciples, and probably chief amongst them Peter, filled Mark in on all the details. We want you to know. We want you to know what, what it was like. We want you to, to kind of walk, walk with us. This is what we experienced as we walked with Jesus in those three years that he was with us in the flesh. You've heard about some of our successes, but you need to know where we started. And you need to know what we learned. So how do we handle success? First of all, sorry, other way around completely. We'll talk about that another time. How do we handle failure? How do we handle when things don't work out as we planned? How do we handle it when we have, in our attempts to serve and glorify God, we then realize that somewhere along the line, we've messed it up. Maybe not in very deliberate sin, choosing to turn away from Jesus, choosing to ignore. We come to our senses and realize, I must have gone, I must have gone wrong somewhere. What's, what's happened? First of all, we need to see that, that failure is an opportunity to learn. There was a, a phrase um, spoken about, probably ridiculed in the press for being an example of political correctness gone mad, but in the realm of education, nothing was to be called a failure. Everything was either a success or a delayed success. It's a bit semantic. I mean, if someone comes up to you and says, oh, you're such a delayed success, you kind of know what they're getting at. <laughs> but there's a kind of concept here that is perhaps helpful to an extent. I wonder if it's why, when I was at primary school, I can remember my teacher in class one would put a nice red tick by something that I did well, but rather than put a big red cross next to a wrong answer, would just put a red dot. And it's kind of a way of seeing, saying, you're not there yet, I can put a tick here later, there's just a little bit more for you to learn, there's an opportunity to learn. Oh, it's just a dot. Those words, see me, were just wonderful to my soul, uh, as I knew. I'd, I hadn't quite understood. No, of course, we, we kind of see things written in red pen and go, oh, I've got it wrong. Well, actually, are the words, I don't know, do teachers do that nowadays? Does your teacher write a red cross or a dot? They do dots. Wonderful. Or maybe, maybe not. Does anybody else get the words, see me? written on their book. I can remember the words, see me. And I was thinking, oh, no, your heart just sinks. Actually, see me is an opportunity to have some time with the teacher who wants to help. Now, let's just take that back from the realm of our own experience of education, which might have been blissful or might have been incredibly painful. I think, actually, when Jesus says to us, you've not got this right, when Jesus maybe even rebukes and says, oh, unbelieving generation, are we written off or is this an opportunity to learn? We might think, that's another question. What was the disciples' mistake? Was it 
that they should have waited for Jesus to come back down the mountain. When the, boy tur- when the man turned up with his son and said, um, I, I brought my son to you, Jesus. And then I asked your disciples to minister to him. Should the disciples have gone, oh, you've misunderstood. We are just disciples. We're not Jesus. So what you need to do is you need to wait for Jesus to come back down the mountain and he can minister to, to your boy. And we, we're kind of like cheerleaders. We, we hang around and we're just there to observe. Well, perhaps, I think the answer is no. Why do they need to learn to handle failure? I don't think that the, 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 the lesson here is, okay, you've tried, you've not succeeded, don't try again. Don't attempt anything for God. Um, if you've tripped up, stay down. Allow someone else. Um, I think the lesson is needing to learn to live and walk by faith. The disciples had the benefit of being with Jesus, seeing him in the flesh, seeing how he handled himself, seeing how he dealt with the crowd, seeing how he loved people, seeing how he showed uh, compassion. Jesus is not here, so come back later. Well, what would life be like If the church said that today, Jesus has gone. As as it were, he's going to come back. Just wait. And we don't attempt anything in the meantime. Jesus knew there's going to be a time when I'm no longer physically with these disciples. So they're going to have to learn to live not by what they see, but they're going to have to learn to live by faith. And lo and behold, that's what Paul would encourage the Corinthians with in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 7. We live by faith, not by sight. Learning to live by faith. It's not an unusual calling for just a few disciples. Sometimes we can use the phrase just to refer to a special group of Christians. It might be a special group of Christians who don't have any obvious means of financial support. So they're living by faith. They're trusting that God is going to provide even though uh, they don't have the income to sustain what they're doing. Or they're serving God in such and such a way, they're just trusting that God will provide financially for them. Well, yeah, that's a a commendable example of living by faith. But we're not called to conclude, ah, there are some who are called to live by faith, and there are some who are called to live by sight. There are some who are called to do extraordinary things for God, and there are some who are called to be ordinary and mess up. What we're seeing here is we all know what failure looks like. We all know what it feels like. And we all need to learn, or we're all in a process of learning by God's grace, what it is to live by faith. Jesus is not just forgetting his disciples. He's not moving on, as maybe someone was praying earlier on. He's not kind of going to plan B. These guys are his disciples. He's committed to them. We've seen that before. They haven't succeeded yet. So they get more. That's what we need to see first. 
Jesus helping his disciples to handle failure. We'll come back to his time with the disciples later, but secondly, we we move on from seeing the the failing followers of Jesus to spend some time with Jesus and the disappointed dad. We see how Jesus intervenes in this. He doesn't kind of stand back and and just expose the disciples and say, no, come on, try again. You really should do better. Try harder. He doesn't kind of labor them. He doesn't weigh them down. He doesn't draw attention to their failings. He takes the whole situation upon himself. What we notice is actually for quite a while in this passage, the disciples are silent. We don't hear anything from them. Jesus is not fooled. He sees the crowd arriving. He sees their enthusiasm, but he knows. I could see there was an argument happening here. What are you arguing with them about? I think the you was the disciples. What are you arguing? I think the them are the critics, are the teachers of the law. What were you, t- what were you arguing about? Notice both groups are completely silent. Teachers of the law have disappeared. They don't want to get too close to Jesus. The disciples are crestfallen and embarrassed. And they're kind of processing what's going on. And they're not saying anything yet. They're working it through. Jesus, a man in the crowd answered, teachers, I brought you my son who's, who's possessed, or we might understand that more as influenced by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. What we're seeing with this disappointed dad is Jesus helping him to battle unbelief. We're going to see that with the disciples as well. Jesus helping the disciples handle failure. Jesus helping the, dis- the, the disappointed dad battle unbelief. Well, he, ha- he believes in Jesus. He has faith. He's come to Jesus. He said, I brought you my son. He finds the disciples. It's perfectly understandable. It's perfectly appropriate that he should expect the disciples of Jesus to be able to operate in the same way that Jesus does. It's perfectly understandable if people rock up in a church and say, well, I've heard about Jesus, I've heard about his power, I've heard about his compassion, so I'm expecting, it to, see, I'm expecting to see it amongst you guys. Because I've understood you're his disciples, you're, you're his church, you're his people. It's perfectly reasonable. To expect disciples to be learning to walk in the ways of their master. Not perfectly, not without fault. But to be growing in it. He's, he has had that expectation. And maybe sometimes this, can be, this may have been your experience. This, this may be other people's experience that you know of. They, what's most got up their nose is not Jesus. It's the church. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, Jesus is great, but I've, I've got hurt. Maybe there's an element of that for this guy. He's had a measure of faith. He's come to Jesus. He's not found Jesus, but he's found his disciples. The disciples have tried, but the disciples haven't succeeded. And then, as it were, the situation gets worse. Or there's there's another example of the same thing happening again. So they brought him, it says in verse 20. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. 
Now that's because the spirit that's at work realizes its time is up and it's, it's encountering Jesus. It's got rumbled and it's about to be dealt with. So it's a, an, a kind of involuntary um, reaction to seeing this is Jesus. We've seen before, they know who Jesus is. They know that he's the son of God. He fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. The situation is repeating itself. Perhaps even the situation is, is getting worse. The boy's taking another bang to the head. The, the boy's exposed again um, to other people seeing what's uh, going on. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? I think, well, does Jesus need to know? Does he not know already? If he doesn't know, does it, does it mean he rolls his sleeves up extra further? Well, no, he's, he's engaging the man in conversation. I want to hear your story. I want to hear what's been, what has been going on. How long have you been having to handle this? Imagine what it must have been like for the dad to think so many times he's had to intervene so many times. He's, he's known anxiety just surge up within him because, well, they've got to cook, so they've got to light a fire. They've got to drink, so they've got to go and get water. But these situations represent a threat represent a danger for this boy. He's seen what's happened before. How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, now that's what it's come to. He had faith to come to Jesus. But now, the disappointment has kind of... Just blown on his doubts and those have raised. Maybe he came with stronger faith in the first place. I'm coming to Jesus. Now it's if you can. If you can. And Jesus is going to help this guy battle unbelief. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Well, everything is possible for Jesus. And Jesus believes. Everything is possible for, um, for him who believes. And this guy's acknowledging, look, actually, yes, I do believe, but I'm just acknowledging, look, I, I'm a mixed bag. I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. He goes from, if you can help me. He moves from that, from Jesus' encouragement, he moves from that to help me as I am. This, this is where I'm at. I do believe, but I'm battling. So see the man as he, as he comes to Jesus. What do we need to do when we are battling unbelief? Come to Jesus. Bring the situation before him and tell him the whole story. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 says, Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. There's a way of just recounting what's going on that makes us more anxious. But if we're coming to Jesus and we are, we're bringing the situation before him, we're reminding ourselves of what he's like. We're reminding ourselves of what he's done. We're reminding ourselves of, of things about which we're thankful. Then we're, we're encouraging our own faith as we come. We don't know if the disciples were here. This could have just been a conversation between 
Jesus and this man with, his, with the boy present as well. A great object lesson to look back to. In fact, in, in, chap, in Matthew chapter 17, Matthew recording the same uh, situation uh, tells us a bit more about the conversation that Jesus had with his uh, disciples afterwards. Uh, where in Matthew chapter 17, partway through verse 20, he says, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And we can think, oh, oh no. Well, I, I've, I've been failing thus far. That must mean my faith is less than a mustard seed and, and somehow I've, I've, I've kind of got to psych myself up. I've got to have a mustard seed's worth of faith. I said, look, that man had a tiny seed of faith. And that was enough because he came to Jesus. He acknowledged the mixed nature of his faith. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus' response was not go away until you have mustered up Unintentional puns are always the best, aren't they? Uh, Until you have mustered up enough faith and then come back to me. And when you have enough, I'll do so. No, he's come to Jesus. The guy has faith and Jesus says, that's enough. I'm, I'm going to work. After that, the focus is just on Jesus. Jesus draws the attention to himself. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, because he cares for the man, because he cares for this boy, unlike the disciples, he doesn't want to create a spectacle. He rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The boy is set free. Um, Jesus then, in verse 27, took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Uh, Luke in Luke's gospel adds the detail and he gave him back to his father. Just here is Jesus at work blessing uh, a family. Jesus acts, he rebukes this evil and he restores the boy. And he helps this disappointed dad battle unbelief. And he wants to do the same for us. Lastly, we see Jesus back with his disciples. The, the story, the, the account of what's happened begins and ends with Jesus and the disciples firstly encountering their failure but they are, and the disciples have been silent all the way through and they've just been pondering a question that they only get round to asking in verse 28 in a secure moment when it's just them, the crowd's gone, it's a safe environment to ask the question. They ask him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Why didn't it work? I mean, you can imagine their frustration. I'll tell you why they were frustrated. This was their calling. This is what God had commissioned them to do. So in Mark chapter 3, we saw what happened when Jesus chose these 12 apostles. Um, verse 13, chapter 3, Jesus went up on another mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. Well, we're called to do this. 
We're trying to serve you, Jesus, in the way that you have asked us to. You've invited us to be with you, and we've been with you, and you've sent us out. Here's another situation where you weren't around, you weren't available. That's fine, because we know you've been training us up. We know you've called us to do this stuff. So we were attempting to be your faithful followers. So why have you allowed us to encounter failure? When we were trying, it wasn't that we were ignoring you, we were trying. So isn't it frustrating when that happens? When in some way we're serving God and then it doesn't quite work out. And it's frustrating as well because in, in chapter 6 of Mark's Gospel, we see they had had previous success. They had been sent out on another occasion. And we find out in Mark 6, verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and cleaned them, uh, healed them. Uh, They have been doing the stuff. They have been ministering with Jesus' authority and seeing people in the benefit. So... Why is it that Jesus said, oh, unbelieving generation? Oh, we're, we're believing. We're believing we're doing what you asked us to do. We're, we're believing that, that you, want to, well, you want to involve us in this. The answer from Jesus comes, he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. What happens when we're in the valley of ordinary life, doing what we think God has called us to, trying to serve and honor him in areas that we feel called to and where we have had success before. What's the danger? The danger is that we become prayerless. I'm success- I can do this. I can handle it. Jesus isn't around. Well, that's fine because I'm here. We're here, guys. We can do this. We don't need to pray. And sometimes it's when we're way out of our comfort zone, doing something for the very first time, that's the point where we know we need God. Lord, if you don't show up, we've really got egg on our face. We know right now, oh Lord, that we need you. Come, help. Lord, we want to take steps of faith, but it's you that's doing it. It's your power, it's your authority, it's, it's your compassion. So when we're out of our comfort zone, we know that we're dependent on God. When we've done it a few times, when maybe we've even had a measure of success, we become, or can become, Blase. I've been here before. I've done this before. I know what's likely to happen. I, I can anticipate it. And we can become formulaic. And you, we see this in Acts as well. People who don't know Jesus have just heard, well, Paul prays in this way in the name of Jesus, and people are freed. Well, why don't we give it a go? Um, and, and what we're attempting to do can just become a bit of a ritual. We, we use a certain group of words, uh, a certain pattern of behavior, 
and piff, paff, poof, hey presto, everything should be okay because we have ministered. What Jesus is just kindly pointing out to the disciples is, when did you become independent? When did you stop relying on me? When did you stop relying on God? When we've done it a few times before, when we are in a comfort zone, we can start to trust ourselves. We can start to trust our own abilities. And I love what, uh, uh, how John Piper uh, describes prayer in one place. He says, prayer is what we do, translating into thousands of different words, what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And we take those words, and when we really are aware of it, we translate those words into our own, according to the situation we face, and we bring them before God. Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing. Lord, here we are. It's a familiar situation, or it's a brand new challenge. Um, I'm feeling high as a kite, or I'm kind of rock bottom, Either which way, I know I need you, Lord God. I know that you've called me to serve you on this world for your kingdom. Would you come? It's not a case, as we looked at at the outset of the disciples, just, well, the right answer would have been just to take a step back, not do anything, not say anything, was to pray. Perhaps that could have been prayer right there in the moment they could have felt hurried by the need of the situation well the boy uh, the father's come he's brought his boy there's a bit of a crowd developing expectations are mounting quick we better do something rather than okay that's great let's just go and find some place let's send the crowd away um come round. we're going to spend some time in prayer together it can feel so unproductive no no we've just got to got to cut to the chase we've got to get on with the task we've got to do that thing which we're called to do now actually what are we called to do if not to be in relationship with Jesus spend time with him in prayer when Jesus was saying apart from me you can do nothing he was reminding his disciples you are branches I am the vine what can a branch do by itself does it bear any fruit by itself no It has to be grafted in. It has to be part of the vine. Then it can draw the the nutrition. Then it can draw the water. And that's that's what we're called to be like. By ourselves, we can do nothing. We are dead twigs that will never bear fruit. Um, So it's our response, our decision is to consciously turn to him. What the disciples were having highlighted for them was their self-reliance. They were just operating on a confidence they had in themselves. They were living by sight rather than faith. I think this is why Jesus wanted to take his disciples up the mountain, as we saw last week. Did Jesus know that he would be transfigured? Perhaps. What Jesus knew he wanted to do when he went up the mountain was pray. So what did he want his disciples to learn? He wanted those three disciples initially to learn 
to pray. Maybe even when the voice of the Heavenly Father is saying, listen to him. This is my son, listen to him. Of course there's so much we t- to listen to, but what do the disciples have the benefit of in so many different situations? Hearing him pray. And so the, the lesson is the same for us. Our Lord Jesus wants us to learn to handle failure well. Not rejoicing in it, not taking it to the opposite extreme, if you like. Jesus wasn't rejoicing in their failure when he said, oh, unbelieving generation. So it's not, it's not kind of creating ha- silly happiness. It's just about acknowledging reality and right here's an opportunity to learn about throwing off disappointment battling unbelief and coming to Jesus that that man in the middle of this passage gives us a model if you like of praying when we don't feel like praying of coming to Jesus when we're just too confronted by the problem no come to Jesus cast it on me Jesus says See what I will do. And Jesus spending time with his disciples. Handling failure, battling unbelief, learning to pray. We're seeing again how wonderfully, graciously persistent Jesus is in committing himself to his disciples. Not going after plan B. No, I've chosen you. So listen to me. Let's learn. Don't see this as something that writes you off. If you look back on this past week, I think sometimes the experience of preaching does this. Personally, think, yes, the previous week, just getting some time in God's presence, enjoying the mountaintop, and then preaching on the mountain. Yeah, come on. And then the following week, spending time, no, (laughs) down the valley. When you're just aware of your own weaknesses and frailties and failures, think, yeah, God's wanting to say something. He's wanting to say something to disciples. He's like, do not write yourself off. Do not make the mistake of separating out God's church into two camps. The special believer and the ordinary. No, we are one. We all have our own mix of of faith and hopefully growing and strengthening faith. We have our own stories to tell of success. We have our own stories to tell of where we've stuffed it up. We're all a community together learning to follow him, learning to battle unbelief, learning to pray, learning to turn to him again rather than rely on our own resources. Amen? Let's pray. Let's worship God together. Let's worship God together. In fact, yeah, whilst the band are sorting themselves out, why don't we stand? This will be our response. There may be other things that uh, happen, but... Father God, I want to thank you, Father, for your wonderful commitment. Thank you for what we see in your Son. How he... How he deals with us, Lord. How he encourages. Not with flattery and pandering to pride. On the one hand, he can say, oh, unbelieving generation. On the other hand, he can remind us, 
Everything is possible for him who believes. On the other hand, he answers our questions. Sets us on our way. Thank you, Lord God, these disciples, these apostles did learn. This wasn't kind of where they stayed. It wasn't a revolving door of unbelief. They grew in their faith. They had stories to tell. By the power and help of your Holy Spirit, they learnt to live by faith when what they saw was disappointing or discouraging. Father God, I thank you that in each and every situation where we might think we've stuffed it up, Lord, I thank you that maybe there's just a little red dot saying, no, you've just not succeeded yet. Listen, learn. I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm, I'm committed to you. And I'm working through you for my glory. And the work that I began, I'm going to carry on to completion. Father, I pray you'd help us not to hide failure. I pray you'd help us not to be silly about failure. I pray you'd help us to learn and encourage one another in faith, in following Jesus, in taking steps of faith, in attempting great things for God in humility rather than just shrinking back and thinking it must be that God's ordained that someone else take this on because I'm done. Lord, thank you. You didn't bring the disciples to that point. You just wanted them to learn. Help us to learn. Help us to follow you in every single way in life, Lord. Let's worship God together before we close.